Welcome to the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast, the show focused on the strategic disruption of the status quo in technical organizations, communities, and events. Sure. So I'm Sharita Golden, and I am currently I'm a professor at the School of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University, and I'm also the vice president and chief diversity officer for Johns Hopkins Medicine. I've been in that latter role for about um, 15 months, and then um, I am also the proud wife of Dr. Christopher Golden, who's a neonatologist at Hopkins, and the proud mother of a son, Andrew, who um, is now, I guess, formerly an adult because he's 21, who is a double major in journalism and African-American studies at Northwestern University. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's a really excellent question is it is important to cause a scene because I think that we all find ourselves at a moment in time where either we can stay silent or we cannot. And, you know, as I reflect on, you know, my own experience, um, for me, the time to cause a scene was in 2015. Um, and that was when the Freddie Gray unrest happened in Baltimore. Um, and when that, that happened after he was, um, you know, he passed away after being in the hands of police, um, you know, I remember that our dean in the School of Medicine wanted each of the departments, and we have 30 departments in our School of Medicine, to really um, bring people together to talk about the issues that were at the root of the riots, because it was clear that it was you know, discrimination and it was economic disadvantage, poverty, um, inadequate, inadequate education, inadequate access to jobs. And many of the people who were um, impacted lived in our surrounding communities around our hospitals and some of them worked with us. So, you know, this was supposed to be bring, bring people together to have a conversation. My department chair though, to his credit said, I don't wanna just have a conversation and check off a box and say we did what we were supposed to to follow up, but he wanted something meaningful and sustainable. And, you know, being a white medicine. So I'm department of medicine. So internal medicine, we take care of you know, all the different organs in the body. I'm specifically an endocrinologist. My focus is diabetes. Yeah. So, um, so in the department of medicine, my chair said he didn't want to check a box and, and he, and being white, he said to me, well, what should we do? What do you think is important? And all of a sudden I had been at Hopkins at that point for 20 years. And I felt like it was time for me to make a scene and tell the truth. And so I was, you know, the, the vice chair of the department. I was second in charge. And so I told him my truth. And it's one of those moments where I can remember like where I was sitting and what I was wearing that day when I said it. And I said, so here's the situation. Even though I'm a professor here, when I drive out of Hopkins from under the protection of the dome, so to speak, that my experience as an African-American woman is very different than my white faculty colleagues' experiences. So my son, Andrew, at the time was 15 years old. He was just learning to drive. Um, you know, and many of my friends were concerned about their kids, you know, getting in a car accident. And of course I worried he'd get in an accident, but I was terrified that he'd get pulled by the police without cause. And, you know, my husband takes care, he's a neonatologist, so he takes care of sick and premature babies. He has to drive to the hospital back and forth in the middle of the night to go take care of other people's sick children. I am petrified until I get the text from him that he's gotten there. Again, worried he'll get pulled over. And then I said to my chair, and by the way, it is not uncommon for me to be followed around in expensive stores and have people ask me three times if I need help because they're not really wondering if I need help, they're trying to figure out if I'm shoplifting. And that's been happening to me since I was a teenager. And so, and I said, and by the way, these concerns and experiences I have, they're the same ones as the, um, the housekeeper that cleans my office and as the security guard that guards our desk downstairs. Because we've all talked about this because we're all the mothers of black sons. And so, you know, I said, we need to understand each other's journeys because all of our journeys are the same. 
please. Yeah. Yes. 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 Right. It is all classes. And I even, you know, I even had some of my white friends say, well, your son won't have any problem. He's so polite and cooperative. I said, but they won't ask a question before they shoot or assume. He won't get a chance to say, my parents are doctors at Johns Hopkins. They've delegated. Right. It, it is suspect. And right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. No, our experiences are not the same. So what it, what is the same is, you know, maybe we've had the same education. So I think about my friends in medical school, right? And I had a very tight class, you know. Um, you know, we had the same educational experience. We got the same, we learned the same thing in the classes. But when we went to the wards, if you were a white male, you were more likely to be, um, you were you were likely to be um, mistaken for the doctor, right? When you were the medical student, those of us who were black women medical students, we were more likely to be mistaken for the cleaning lady or the dietary staff. So not even the nurse. So, you know, when I became a doctor and that mistake would be made, if someone called me a nurse, I was almost relieved because I said, okay, well, you know, that's like a medical professional. But what I got asked to do, can you get the bedpan? Are you here to turn on the TV? Are you here to you know, roll me over. So, you know, that, you know, it's not even, you're not even in like the professional medical arena if you're black woman. Oh no, I totally agree. And my grandmother did that kind of work. That's why I'm here today. So. Correct. 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 It it does because no matter Yeah. Exactly. Yes, 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 yes. No, and that's called, um, it's called status leveling. It's like, oh, but you couldn't possibly be up here. It's status leveling and it's called role incongruence. You know, I'm sorry, but I don't associate black woman with doctor, right? So, um, and again, and like you said, I don't have an issue with everybody in our hospital. To me, we are all there to serve. So we are all doing a service. But what's really funny is if I get on the elevator, the cleaning staff would make sure that all the white people in the elevator knew I was a doctor. They're like, hey, doc, how's your day going? Like really loudly. <laughs> yeah, because they wanted to make it clear. Don't be confused. Just because she's talking to me, I want you to know that she did this extra education and she's here to help us. So they would always make it clear that I was a doctor, my other black colleagues were doctors. Correct, correct. Because I had that sense of community. My community ended up being all those support staff. I walked through the hospital. They said, like, honey, how old is your baby? I'm like, well, he's 21 now. He's actually an adult. But they remember when I was hobbling around pregnant, you know, they because they looked after me and my husband. And so that is why, 
you know, I had those relationships and I had been talking with them around all these things that happened after Freddie Gray. And I told my department chair, we need to talk about people's journeys and we need to share it transparently. And I am willing to do that as a leader. We're going to launch a journeys and medicine series in our department. And we're going to talk about very difficult topics. We're going to talk about how do our patients experience us when they come into our health care system? How do we address the fact that we may be contributing to biased experiences they have in healthcare? And how can we improve that? Um, how, what is our relationship as an anchor medical institution to the surrounding community? And how do we establish that trust? And why has that trust been broken? And what are we doing about the fact that there are still more police that are shooting Black men? You know, this is what just happened this year. It's not the first time. They were bring up this in 2016. choked choked to death you know essentially and and you know when the, but this happened in 2016 people may not recall that there was a week in 2016 where two black men got shot in the same week and at that point my chair and I said this is really unacceptable he sent out a statement to the department you know sort of affirming that we stand with our communities and we had a, one of our police chief for the community division come in and talk about the challenges with policing in the community. So we had these very tough conversations in our department. And, you know, and there were some people maybe that weren't happy. In fact, I remember when he sent out that announcement, someone came up to me and said, well, you know, somebody said some people were reading this and it seemed like, you know, like he was sort of taking sides. I said, well, he, he was, because he was standing for what was just. And so, um, you know, and so I think, the other thing that I learned in that, that when you're making a scene, it's so important to identify your, your, your white allies who are true allies. And that is what he was and enabled that conversation and didn't try to shut it down when it became uncomfortable. And so, you know, I think we all have these Esther moments and I say this to the women in particular, because I can tell you how I'm really causing a scene now. <laughs> Because once I got activated, I just kept going. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it, it's it's not. And it's it's kind of funny because, you know, when you have a 21-year-old in this era, you know, he's sort of like just, you know, says whatever. They say whatever they think. This generation is very clear. And that was something I said when he was home during the pandemic because he had to come back you know, for about five months when things shut down. But I don't remember what it was. I said, he's like, wow, mom, that's just a new, <laughs> that's a new side of you. But, um, but I think that, you know, we all have an Esther moment. And, you know, if you think about, if you remember the story of Esther in the Bible, like she found out that there was this plot to kill, to annihilate all the Jewish people. And her cousin Mordecai came to her and said, you know, Esther, you know, there's this plot and don't think that because you're the queen that you're going to be spared. They're going to kill us all. And so unless you go in there and talk to the king and let him know this is happening, you know, we're all going to die. And she said, and he said, and who knows, perhaps you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And she knew that it was risky to go into the king uninvited and make a request, but she did. She said, well, if I perish, let me perish. Because she knew like she had to go and try to at least save her people. And I think we all have an Esther moment at some point in our life where either we can sit in silence or we have to step up and be ready to step forward and answer that call. So that that's sort of what happened to me in 2015. Uh-huh. 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 
Yeah. 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 Yes. Right, right, Right. Right. And the thing is, that's a difference between equality and equity, right? Because, right. So equality assumes that we're starting from the same starting point. So we're not starting from the same starting point. So that that means that we need to we need to engage in equity, which means that we've got to take a different side in the name of equity than we might in the name of equality. And so, you know, this is like the these are like the tough conversations we began having. And then, um, you know, maybe three or four years after that, you know, we had an opening um, for vice president, chief diversity officer for Johns Hopkins Medicine. So my department chair, the same person that, you know, we had sort of caused, started causing all this good trouble together. He said to me, well, you know, um, you would be really good at that job because, you know, you've been here for a long time. Like you understand the promotion process. You understand the community and the staff. And, you know, and I told him no three times because I said, well, I, I was like, I, you know, I was trained as a scientist. Like I'm a diabetes researcher. And, you know, I said being black for 50 years, which it was at the time, doesn't qualify me to be a chief diversity officer. Turns out that's actually pretty good qualification. But, you know, he was the one that actually even put that bug in my ear. when our last chief diversity officer left. And so as I actually began to think about it, you know, I was like, if I'm going to do something really meaningful for this institution and for the community, then I need to sort of step out of my comfort zone. And, you know, and I thought, okay, I do understand the system. I understand the operations. I can go and learn all of the diversity, equity, and inclusion strategies. I mean, I knew a lot of them. We had done many of those things in our department, but I was like, I could, I could go figure that part out. And, um, right. So I, so, you know, so I, I, as I became comfortable with my own skin and my, and sharing my own lived experience, then I gained the confidence to say, you know, as the interview process went on, I could do this. So, you know, when I got selected, you know, I was, you know, excited, but nervous. And, you know, I thought, okay, you know, we'll have a couple of years to gain our footing. Well, who knew in my first year that we would have a pandemic that would disproportionately kill indigenous black and people of color. And then that there would be what I'm calling the country's second civil rights movement. I mean, all of these things have happened in the last year. So then I thought, I thought you could only have one Esther moment. I didn't know you could have two. <laughs> Everyone in the hashtag call the scene community shares the same common beliefs based on a set of four specific guiding principles. One, tech is not neutral, nor is it apolitical. Two, intention without strategy is chaos. Three, lack of inclusion is a risk and increasingly a crisis management issue. And lastly, but most importantly, four, we must prioritize the most vulnerable. To find out more about the guiding principles and adding them to your Twitter profile banner, please visit hashtag causeascene.com. Yes.
Yes. No. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Yes. 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 Yeah. Right, right. And I think the pandemic really brought that out for us. And so, you know, while a lot of my role is focused on diversity and inclusion strategy for our health system and our school of medicine. So, I, you know, the, so between the two organizations is about 44,000 people, um, you know, but we also are responsible for health equity operational strategy within our health system. And so the point is that you cannot achieve true health equity without a diverse and inclusive workforce. So they're intricately connected. Diversity and inclusion in healthcare is a matter of life and death because if our biases impact our healthcare decisions, a patient dies. So, you know, we've, we've been able to get people to see that connection and the pandemic made it so clear because, you know, we have in Baltimore City, um, of course, our African-American and our Hispanic and Latinx populations were really um, disproportionately impacted, just like around the nation. Um, but one of the things that became very clear is the language barriers in our Hispanic population, the fact that they had undocumented status and could not get any federal aid really crushed them even further. And so we had to activate our bilingual workforce to be able to support, you know, that community. And then it becomes clear, like, we need to actually think about, do we have enough bilingual contact tracers in our city health departments around the nations, in our state health departments, um, our mm -hmm. systems? Yes. 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 It will. And you know what's been really compelling? So this is how I've been causing a scene. <laughs> so um, I thought it was very important. So I remember like maybe two or three weeks to the pandemic, it was very clear African-Americans were dying disproportionately. Um, the death rate hadn't quite gone up in the Hispanic community except in New York. And a reporter asked me, well, are we doing research at Johns Hopkins to understand why we're seeing this, this, these disparities? And I said, no, because we already know why those disparities exist. I said, we want to do research to figure out how to avoid them. So I started telling her was, well, there are disparities in the healthcare system. And so back during slavery, we used to experiment on people, on slaves without their consent and without anesthesia. And so this started this falsehood that African-Americans have a higher pain tolerance than other groups. Their pain is inadequately controlled after surgery. Even to this day, that's a bias. There was eugenics theory that said that, you know, um, people of certain races were um, biologically inferior to others. And um, yes, it was. This was all, these are all things written into law that I'm talking about. And so, um, and that really, that that theory was was sort of around until like right after World War II. You know, when Hitler started using that eugenics theory, it it, it lost some popularity. But there is still this thinking that certain racial and, and marginalized groups have less value. So not just black people, but you know other minority groups, those with dis mental and physical disabilities, all of those groups experimented on without their consent, thought to have less value. And then there was the 1910 Flexner report that closed a lot of medical schools in the country, because it said 
medical schools should not be proprietary schools. They should be based on this biomedical model, which is great. That's the whole model I trained under. But the problem for medical schools that were training Black physicians is that it means that after the closures under the old system, only Howard and Meharry were left to educate Blacks who wanted to become physicians. And this was at a time where they couldn't gain access to predominantly white medical schools. So this means that we have been behind the eight ball in Black physicians. Yes. Yes. Right, right. Because being so far behind. So like there's some stat that if they left those medical schools open, like by 2019, there would have been like over 35,000 more black physicians who, you know, would, would have been would have been here. So, you know, this is like we can't catch up. Yes. So I think that's a really important point. I mean, because that's the, the other thing that I've been talking about as it was related to COVID and all the disparities that we see is there's this whole medical side, but then there's this whole social environmental justice side where, you know, the other thing that happened in a lot of cities is that as there was the migration of African-Americans from the South up North after the Civil War, that as Black families would move into a predominantly white neighborhood, then there would be like this white flight out of that neighborhood. So they would move to other neighborhoods and then loan sharks would come in and they knew African-Americans were wanting to get their first home and they would engage in predatory lending practices. And then there would be this high rate of loan default in that neighborhood. So then they would redline that neighborhood. They, they did the redlining. So once a neighborhood, and this was law in Baltimore City, this was in a part of the ordinance for years. So once the neighborhood was redlined, that means there was no economic development in that neighborhood, no investment in their schools, no investment in public works and sanitation. And so what happened is those individuals end up living in neighborhoods with housing instability, exposure to environmental toxins, poor school systems, and inadequate access to jobs and economic development. And the residual of that is still there today impacting your health. Forever, yeah. Yeah. Right, 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 right. So the air pollution and the asthma. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. which is why we had such a hard time with COVID because you can imagine it. So you've been living in an environment that predisposes you to lung disease, predisposes you to diabetes. Cause if you can't walk around in your neighborhood, there's no parks and green spaces. And then as 
There are no trees. And then you talked about the access to the healthy food. You know, a lot of people say, well, if people would just make better choices, that assumes that you actually have a choice to make. And so, you know, in the area where our where I where I've practiced, if you want to get to Whole Foods to buy all the pricey stuff, you have to take three city buses or something if you don't have a car. It's not easy to get to. And then when you get there, it's expensive. Right. So if we think about how we have set up our neighborhoods, you've got to have a fire hydrant ever so many blocks, you know, for safety reasons. There should be affordable, healthy food every so many blocks. It just should. Yeah. 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 Right, right. And and I remember one of my research coordinators, and this was years ago, she was involved in an asthma study and they were talking to the students, um, and it was elementary school students, about you know how to eat healthy. And so she took fruit in and they were going over things and a little boy said to her, bananas aren't yellow, they're brown. Because that was all he had ever seen in the store. So if you go to the store and you have a choice between canned peaches over here and brown bananas, you're going to get the canned peaches because even the things that are supposed to be fresh are not as fresh. So, you know, from that standpoint, I think it's been very important to me to talk about that because as a doctor, you cannot adequately take care of your patient if you do not understand the context in which he or she lives. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yes. Right. And if you think about product development, if you listen to the perspective that a diverse body of employees brings, you will actually make better and more effective products, right? Because there have been times where, you know, somebody's working on, um, you know, some new diabetes deliver insulin delivery device or something. Okay. And so if I say, well, how does that work for a patient who doesn't have a refrigerator? Or how would that work for, then that causes them to think, oh, okay, there are some people with a disadvantage. So let us think about a way that this can be done at room temperature. And then bam, you've brought, you've broadened your whole market right there, right? Right. Right. And, you know, and there are data that show that, and particularly in the business sector, that companies that have more diversity, like, for example, even starting at the board level, more diversity in their boards, they have better economic return on investment in their products, greater creativity and innovation in the products that they develop. They engage in less risky business decisions, so they make better decisions. And so there are data that show that this is effective. And uh -huh. Uh-huh. Right.
Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Right. And these are these are not political things. They are public health strategies. You know, you are your brother's keeper. You are your fellow American's keeper. Wearing a mask protects your fellow American. So right. Right. Uh-huh. 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 Yeah, so I think this is, it's incredibly important. You know, I think in the last like 50 years or so, we made a lot of headway in recognizing that, you know, stress does impact our physical health. There is absolutely a mind-body connection. And, you know, in fact, the whole way I got into that body of work was that, you know, I was noticing a lot of my patients with diabetes had depression. And then we were able to do studies showing that if you have depression and don't have diabetes, that if we follow you for years, you're at an increased risk of developing depression. You're at an increased risk of developing heart disease, right? So just, and, and there's a couple of reasons. One is it, it makes sense because you think about it. There's sort of two things. So, you know, if you're depressed, people who are depressed generally don't like to exercise. They're not going to be motivated to exercise, not going to be motivated to eat as healthy, maybe smoke more, not follow the doctor's orders. All those things are risk factors for diabetes and heart disease. But then we also know that depression in particular and other mental stressors, and this will get to the question you're asking, activates our body's stress hormone system, Right. And so these, there's stress hormones called cortisol and adrenaline. So like if you're being chased by a bear, right? You're right. So you're, you're in this flight says, I'm being chased by a bear. Your cortisol and adrenaline are up. You're pumping out glucose. So you have the energy to run from this bear. And then once you escape the bear, it's a very tightly regulated system. You know, it feeds back to your brain and says, the bear is gone, shut this off. And it shuts it off. Everything returns to normal. If you are under chronic stress, because you're like, okay, um, my son is out later than he should be. Shoot, should I start calling or being concerned? Um, I can't decide whether I should let my hair go natural in the pandemic because they're going to still think I'm professional. Um, oh God, what if I say the wrong thing in the interview? So if you have all of these stressors that you're chronically dealing with, and this is regardless of socioeconomic status, that means that you're going to constantly be in this low-level flight state all the time. And so and now you can imagine if you have that and you're living in poverty and you're working two jobs and you're not sure where your next meal's coming from, that just adds to that level of stress. And so generationally over time, what happens is that it it almost like we, we've got to survive this stress, right? So even in utero, you know, our body starts reprogramming itself to be able to survive those stressors because this has been passed down generationally since slavery. But then that lets us survive in utero, but then what it means is that it really results in some abnormalities in how our metabolism works that increases our risk for diseases in adulthood. So in other, and then, so it's like, you've already got this pre-programming, if you will, and then you're living these stressors, you know, every day. 
every day. Right. Yes, yes. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Right, right. I mean, it's this extra energy. And this is extra level of concern that, you know, white colleagues don't have. And I think the key is, you know, and, and I've been sort of teaching my institution about allyship. When we share those experiences, don't negate them. That is somebody's lived experience. You can't explain it away. I mean, there was one evening recently where I know I spent 20 minutes composing an email trying to prevent a misunderstanding. You know, and my husband said, are you still sitting at the table on that one email? <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, because you don't want to come across angry. You don't want to come across uncollaborative. And so, you know, these are issues women have to deal with in general, but Black women, brown women deal with them, you know, at a magnified level. And, you know, and that, you know, that kind of stress has an impact on health. And, you know, I remember um, when we were talking with some of our students not too long after Joy Floyd unrest, and someone said, you know, um, but everybody worries about pulled, getting pulled over by the police. I said, well, no, let me explain the difference. I said, you know, if you're white and you get pulled over by the police, you're worried about getting a ticket or a citation, maybe getting arrested. I said, if you're black and being pulled over by the police, you worry about dying. So getting a ticket or getting arrested would almost be a relief. I'm now ready to articulate and to publicly share my need to shift from causing the scene. Currently this work, this push for equity, for minimizing harm, and for prioritizing the most vulnerable is collectively viewed by many as noise, bullying, troublemaking, as contrarian for controversy's sake, rather than what it is, a necessary evolution for the overall health and well-being of those who work for us, partner with us, buy from us, invest in us, and society as a whole. My focus from this day forward is to forge a path to welcoming and psychological safety in systems, institutions, and policies at scale because I will no longer put new wine into old wineskins. My team and I will be spending the next few months making the necessary changes to ensure that my new commitment to doing the proactive work of leading a movement framed by the guiding principles and seen through an anti-racist lens strategically happens with a relaunch on Juneteenth. To be kept informed of our progress, please follow me on Twitter at K-I-M-C-R-A-Y-T-O-N-1, Kim Creighton 1, and on our new Kim Creighton's Community Cafe Discord server. When I started Hashtag Cause a Scene in 2019, it was out of my frustration that no one was listening. Now that you're listening, it's time to get to work. Thank you for the years of support, and I'll meet you on the other side. Have a wonderful day. Right. And so, that, that, so that's where the difference in the anxiety level. Uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. Right. Uh, 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 right. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, that's very chilling. I mean, it's sort of always feeling like you've got to um, do these extra measures to prove that what you're doing is okay. I mean, I actually, I actually carry a mini copy of my medical license in my wallet because if, you know, someone needs medical assistance and I get questioned, I at least have that because female physicians of color, you know, have basically gone to help somebody. It happened to a colleague of mine on an airplane. I won't mention what, yeah, I won't mention the airline's names, but this happened to two black women physicians. And the first time it happened, she didn't have the medical license. The stewardess said she wanted a real doctor. So they let, you know, they, they dismissed her and, you know, um, let the white doctor take care of this gentleman. So then I started telling my black female, like younger colleagues, you guys should carry your medical license in your wallet. I've always carried it in my wallet. You know, that way nobody questions. Well, one of my colleagues did carry it in her wallet. And then they asked her, was that her real license? Right, believed, not believed. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right. Right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So, you know, I, th I think we have to reach a point where we give others that same opportunity and stop sort of assuming based on stereotypes, you know, that have been created to be oppressive, basically. You know, like this is a time where everybody can begin to educate themselves and read for themselves. You know, I was thinking about all of the very interesting books that my son has read, you know, as an African-American studies major on our history and our literature. And, you know, I said to my husband, golly, I said, I wish I'd taken more AFAM. I said, I don't remember any of those. And my husband said, honey, because those books weren't written when we were in college. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like, it was either World Book or Britannica. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Right, right. So there weren't there weren't writings on African American authors, all these things. So all the things on the medical history I mentioned to you and you know, some of our social history. I mean, I've read that on my own. You know, my family was very much um making sure I knew my history. I mean, my brother and my father were at the um, 63 March on Washington. So they heard the late Congressman Lewis's speech and Martin Luther King Jr. speech in person, you know? So that was always in my blood, but it's just, you can only learn what's out there in the literature. And so there's just this much. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. 
Yeah, right, right. Exactly. So I think it is a time for education. And I think, you know, with all the difficulty that that is beyond difficult, really, in the last seven or eight months. But, you know, I've been at my place now for 26 years. And it's like people's ears are really open and people are digging deep and they're asking tough questions and they're not afraid to be uncomfortable. Not, you know, there are people who are still uncomfortable, but organizationally, like we're ready to ask many of those tough questions. And a lot of our leaders are digging in and reading some really difficult reading and coming to terms. Yes. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. Right. And, you know, and if I think about my industry, you know, like yours is technology, mine is healthcare. It's like we have to have cohesive teams, right? Because that is directly related to patient safety. So we can't have people on the team that can't talk to each other, don't know how to resolve conflict. So, you know, we are sort of like now suddenly realizing like, okay, as crazy as the last few months have been, it's like crash course on conflict mediation, <laughs> conversations, restorative justice, like bringing people together. I mean, it's sort of like we're all kind of laughing on my team because we're like, you know, we should have just gone to school last year and gotten a degree. If we'd seen all this coming, we could have all... <laughs> Mm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, because we are relational beings. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it is about the relationships. And interestingly, you know, a lot of what, what we find when there's misunderstanding is just the intention versus impact, right? And so, you know, okay, I realize you didn't intend that, but you have to understand how that I hear that in my ear. And when we can get people to begin to take the other's perspective on that, then we can begin to make progress because we can't have people on a medical team for a patient that don't respect each other, won't listen, won't regard each other. And so, you know, we're trying to come at it for people in that way. If you can't get there because of, moral conscience, then at least get there because this is the right thing to do for a patient. We all, you know. Right, right, exactly, exactly. And, you know, and I think, um, you know, I've been really fortunate in this role because it, it has been tough, not easy, um, that, you know, our leadership, like our executive leadership is incredibly supportive, right? So we've got to like trickle this down then to the rest of the organization and make it completely clear. And, um, you know, that, um, you know, people often will be like, I don't understand why we have to talk about race at work. I mean, I don't understand. But we have to talk about it because at least, you know, in our industry in particular, like the patients you take care of are different races. And that is going to impact their prior experience, their experience in healthcare, and like how you treat them. And as you were talking about the trust factor, there are reasons they're not not taking the medicine because they want to be belligerent. It is because of Tuskegee, the Tuskegee syphilis experiments and the Guatemala syphilis experiment and Henrietta Lacks and all of these other things that have happened.
Right. 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 Yes. Right. Right. Yes, no, this has been a very stimulating conversation. And, um, you know, and I, I think the thing that I would, I would want to end with is that, you know, we all have an Esther moment in our lives and it can be incredibly uncomfortable, but you need to, you know, you need to make good trouble and step up and step into it and, and be courageous because, you know, if you don't, somebody else will. And you don't want to be at a point in life later to look back and say, if only I had, I could have made a difference in. And I feel like that is the time that we're in. And um, and then, you know, I also think about, um, you know, I don't know, 30 years from now, you know, when, when my grandchildren asked me, well, how was it in 2020? I heard all these things went on and there's a pandemic. And I want to be able to have something that I'm proud to share as a part of the heritage and legacy of my family and the, the um, ancestors of mine who have struggled so I could even be where I am. I want to be able to be passing that legacy on to them. So I ask you to do that too. Think about what is the legacy that you want to tell your family 30 years from now when they say, golly, that 2020 years, there'll be books written about this year. There will be books. Right. Yes. All right. That is so funny. <laughs> it does feel like that, I tell you. I mean, I was born in 1968, like two weeks before Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. So I sort of felt like, okay, I was sort of coming out of that. And we went through this whole 70s, 80s thing. And then for a while, things were settled and we're sort of back. I guess everything comes full circle. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And my father and my father, I told you he was at that March on Washington. He said this time is different because we have people of all colors, races and groups who are standing with us. And he said it was not like that. before. So and he's he's almost 85. So I'm listening to him. <laughs> yes. It is. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Right. Right. Thank you. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Hashtag Cause the Scene podcast. And I'd like to thank all our current sponsors of the podcast and the Hashtag Cause the Scene movement. Of course, we strongly encourage everyone to become an individual sponsor of the Hashtag Cause the Scene community. Just visit the website at HashtagCauseTheScene.com to sign up today. On behalf of everyone here at Hashtag Cause the Scene, we'd like to thank you again for listening to today's show and have a wonderful day.